You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about menstruation and period poverty. Joining me is Dr. Shelby Davies, a fellow in the Division of Adolescent Medicine, also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Davies. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off with a basic reminder of the normal sequence of puberty and when menarche typically happens. That's an excellent place to start. I think medical providers and the youth we care for often need to be reminded about the variability and individuality of the menstrual cycle. Let's begin with the definition of puberty. Puberty is broadly defined as the time at which a child develops secondary sexual characteristics and reproductive function and results from a complex sequence of biological events that are mediated by genetic, hormonal, and environmental factors. Initiation of true pubertal development requires activation of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal, or HPG, axis, and pulsatile release of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH. This signals the anterior pituitary to release luteinizing hormone, or LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. In general, LH stimulates specialized cells in the ovary to produce androgens, while FSH stimulates growth of the ovarian follicle. Although puberty often occurs in a predictable pattern, the age of onset, sequence, and tempo may vary. Girls normally begin puberty between 8 and 13 years of age. The first physical sign of puberty is usually coelarche, or breast development. Pubic hair also starts to grow around this time, and some girls may notice more hair on their arms or legs. Menarche refers to the first menstrual bleed, and usually occurs two to two and a half years after the onset of puberty. The average age of menarche is between 12 and 12 and a half years. Following menarche, girls tend to grow another five to seven and a half centimeters or two to three inches annually over the next year or two, and then reach their adult height. While we're talking about normal development, I wanted to quickly review what a normal menstrual cycle looks like. A normal menstrual cycle counting from the first day of one menstrual period to the first day of menses of the next cycle is between 21 and 45 days in young adolescents, although 21 to 35 days is most common. And a normal period lasts from three to seven days. Bleeding lasting eight or more days is considered prolonged. So at what age should we worry if menarche doesn't happen and how do we evaluate for the etiology? This is something that's often identified first by primary care providers. Primary amenorrhea is defined as the lack of menses by 15 years, or by more than three years after the onset of puberty. 
However, if by 13 years, no menses have occurred and there's a complete absence of secondary sexual characteristics like breast development, evaluation for primary amenorrhea should also begin. In addition, some girls with secondary sexual characteristics may present before age 15 with amenorrhea and cyclic pelvic pain. And these patients should be evaluated for possible outflow tract obstruction. I want to make sure the difference between primary and secondary amenorrhea is clear. Secondary amenorrhea is defined as three months of amenorrhea after the achievement of menarche. Underlying conditions may overlap in primary and secondary amenorrhea, and therefore careful history and physical exam are crucial to the diagnosis. So let's discuss how to evaluate for the etiology. For girls with amenorrhea unrelated to outflow tract anomalies, the diagnostic evaluation is similar for both primary and secondary amenorrhea. I think it's helpful to think about two main etiologies of amenorrhea, hypergonadotropic versus hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Hypergonadotropic hypogonadism implies end organ dysfunction, such as ovarian insufficiency. Hypogonadotropic hypogonadism implies that either the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland is the root of the problem. The most common cause of this is functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, such as that caused by stress, weight loss, exercise, but this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Because pregnancy is a rare but possible cause of primary amenorrhea and the most common cause of secondary amenorrhea, the first test to perform is a urine pregnancy test. The next steps are to obtain levels of estradiol, FSH, and LH. Elevated levels of FSH and LH indicate hypergonadotropic hypogonadism, or end organ dysfunction, whereas low levels indicate hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, or an endocrine etiology. To assess for this, we recommend sending thyroid-stimulating hormone or free thyroxine and prolactin. Other laboratory tests to consider include total and free testosterone, androstenedione, and DHEAS to screen for hyperandrogenism. The most common cause of hyperandrogenism in this age group is polycystic ovarian syndrome. A 17-hydroxyprogesterone or 17-OHP should also be sent in primary amenorrhea or secondary amenorrhea with features of hyperandrogenism to screen for mild or atypical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Thank you. That was a great review of amenorrhea. But we know that even after menarche, there are some other things that can go awry with this cycle. So let's troubleshoot managing a few of them. The first is irregular cycles. What should we do about that? This is a great question and incredibly common during adolescence. Let me start with abnormal uterine bleeding. Menstrual cycles are often irregular in the first months and up to two to five years after menarche. The most common cause of abnormal uterine bleeding in the first five years after menarche is anovulatory cycles related to the immaturity of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. This, however, is a diagnosis of exclusion. In evaluating the patient with abnormal uterine bleeding, it's important to consider the possibility of pregnancy first. The patient's menstrual history can help narrow down the other possibilities. 
Regular cycles accompanied by premenstrual symptoms and dysmenorrhea usually imply ovulatory bleeding. Regular, cyclic, but heavy flow can be suggestive of a bleeding disorder such as von Willebrand disease, although not all heavy bleeding is associated with a bleeding disorder. Irregular cycles, such as anovulatory cycles, characterized by constantly proliferative endometrium due to waxing and waning estrogen levels. Aside from an immature hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, providers should also consider endocrinopathies, such as hypo or hyperthyroidism, prolactinoma, and hyperandrogenism. And again, the most common cause of hyperandrogenism in this age group would be polycystic ovarian syndrome. Intermenstrual bleeding typically suggests conditions such as cervicitis due to sexually transmitted infections or breakthrough bleeding associated with use of hormonal contraception. Treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding is based largely on the severity of anemia, in addition to management of any comorbid conditions. The general goal of treatment is to stabilize the endometrium by providing estrogen for initial hemostasis and progestins for endometrial stability. The most convenient and effective option in most cases is treatment with a combined OCP. For adolescents who have contraindications to the use of estrogen, such as history of blood clot, uncontrolled hypertension, migraine with aura, immobility, or chronic illness, management of abnormal bleeding with progestins is possible. The progestin-eluting IUD is an option for management of abnormal uterine bleeding and is actually now considered first line for bleeding management for young women with hematologic disorders. It's a method that we commonly use to treat both abnormal bleeding and dysmenorrhea, even in patients who are not sexually active. You mentioned menorrhagia and dysmenorrhea in relation to irregular cycles, but what about in regular cycles? How can we manage those? Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about dysmenorrhea now, which is also quite common in adolescents. Primary or functional dysmenorrhea is pain that occurs in the absence of pelvic disease, whereas secondary dysmenorrhea is secondary to another pathologic process. Primary dysmenorrhea usually presents in the second or third year after menarche, when ovulation becomes more regular. Pain may be reported in the lower abdomen, back, or upper thighs, and may be associated with headache, nausea, or diarrhea. The symptoms are caused by prostaglandin secretion in the uterus after an ovulatory cycle, resulting in increased uterine contractility and upregulation of pain receptors. So how do we treat it? Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen and naproxen, inhibit the enzymes necessary for prostaglandin synthesis and are used to commonly treat dysmenorrhea. It's important to know here that Tylenol does not act on this pathway and is much less effective for the treatment of primary dysmenorrhea. If appropriate doses of NSAIDs don't control these symptoms after two to three cycles, a trial of OCPs may be indicated. Oral contraceptive pills reduce menstrual pain by eliminating ovulation and by thinning the endometrial lining. When ovulation doesn't occur and the endometrial lining is thinner, the synthesis of prostaglandins is reduced. In fact, 
Any hormonal method here that blocks ovulation can improve dysmenorrhea pain for these reasons, including the intramuscular Depo-Provera injections and the hormonal implants. And as I mentioned before, the hormonal IUD can also be used for dysmenorrhea. Thank you so much for that review. Let's shift a little bit back to regular cycles. So pads and tampons have been the mainstay of menstruation management for many decades now, but there are a lot of newer product options on the market, particularly with a more environmentally conscious approach. So can you tell us about things like menstrual cups and underwear and what some of the advantages and challenges of these are? Sure. I definitely think that it's something our patients are talking about, even if they don't always talk to us about it. Mm -hmm. So in general, there are a number of benefits that come with different reusable menstrual products, including but not limited to less waste, potentially lower costs, and more convenience. Youth don't really need to worry about running out of these menstrual supplies potentially at inconvenient moments, and many of the products hold greater volume, so they don't typically require changing as frequently. And this may also mean fewer leaks. So let's take a bit of a closer look at the menstrual cup option you mentioned. The menstrual cup is a soft plastic cup that seals over the cervix and catches any blood coming out. There are different types of menstrual cups on the market. Some are one-time use and others are reusable. Menstrual cups have a larger capacity than tampons and if used correctly, are more leak-proof. Theoretically, one can leave the menstrual cup in for up to 12 hours without leakage, which can be a tremendous benefit for youth during the school day or when youth don't have access to a bathroom. The rinse and reuse options are also much more environmentally friendly and may save money in the long run. However, insertion and removal of these products can be really challenging for some youth, especially those who are new to menstruating or who are not sexually active. And in theory, emptying out the cup should be simple and mess-free, although the reality of this may be different depending on the comfort level with insertion and removal. And if not used correctly, there may actually be more leakage than with other more traditional options. And lastly, the menstrual cup also needs to be rinsed before reinsertion, which may present additional challenges. So let's move on to the period underwear briefly. Most period underwear is made with an absorbent layer and waterproof backing. These options offer their own sets of benefits and challenges. They tend to be the most comfortable option for youth and can be used both as a backup method or alone and similar to the menstrual cup, are considered eco-friendly. Challenges, though, include the high cost of each pair and the fact that many youth may need more than one pair in order to make this their main option. Youth may still also report feeling the blood, less than with pads, but more than with tampons or menstrual cups. However, in general, they don't tend to feel damp for long as the liquid does soak through that top part of the underwear that touches the body pretty quickly. And like the menstrual cup, cleaning the reusable underwear can be challenging. It often requires a process of washing with cold water and soap until the water runs clear before they can then be used and washed in a washing machine. Yeah, you mentioned that while there are some long-term benefits and certainly the eco-conscious approach of these, that there is a little bit of equity here and that there's a high cost and you need access to 
a bathroom to be able to clean these products. So that brings us into our next topic of period poverty, which is a relatively new term for some people. It's defined as inadequate access to menstrual hygiene tools and education, including but not limited to sanitary products, washing facilities, and waste management. Can you tell us more about what this looks like and the scope of this issue? Of course. Let's start with what this looks like and why it's an important issue, particularly for the youth we take care of. Menstrual products are expensive. We know that from previous published survey data, many low-income American youth struggle to afford menstrual products. In one national survey of 1,000 teens who menstruate in the U.S. between 13 and 19 years old, two-thirds of these teens felt stress due to lack of access to period products. One in five of these teens surveyed struggled to afford period products or were not able to purchase them at all. And while adults often disclose issues with employment, teens who menstruate face many barriers to uninterrupted education and school days. Four in five of these teens surveyed in this study either missed or know someone who missed class time because they didn't have access to period products. There currently are not many resources in place to help youth with this issue. And in fact, there are certain factors that make it even harder for families to purchase menstrual products. Unfortunately, government benefits such as the SNAP program and WIC do not cover the cost of these necessary supplies. And there are still 30 states in the U.S. that tax menstrual products as a luxury item. So to put this into perspective a little bit, Hawaii has a tax on tampons, but erectile dysfunction pills are untaxed. Texas has a tax on tampons, but dandruff shampoo is untaxed. And many believe that since the sales tax on menstrual supplies applies only to those who menstruate, This can therefore be seen as a form of sex-based discrimination. That's a really great point that you bring up, and I did not know all of that nuance, so thank you for teaching us about that. How has the COVID-19 pandemic influenced period poverty right here in Philadelphia? Unfortunately, the pandemic has caused even more youth to experience period poverty. We know from certain studies that since the COVID-19 pandemic, about one in three parents of menstruating youth worry about their ongoing ability to afford period products. And while the CARES Act made period products medical expenses eligible for purchase for the first time, actually, with FSAs or HSAs, uninsured or publicly insured individuals can access these benefits. And many students also rely on menstrual products purchased and supplied by school districts and stored within a school clinic or nurse's office. And we know that despite local efforts, menstrual products provided by the schools are now often unavailable to many youth with school closures due to the pandemic. Yeah, we're so grateful for our school nurses and donations at the school level and hope that when kids get back to school, this is less of an issue. But thank you for drawing attention to it, as many might not have realized that this was happening within our own city. So what can we as pediatricians do to help our communities with period poverty? I think there is really tremendous opportunity for primary care physicians to have a really significant impact here. The American Academy of Pediatrics, as we know, recommends surveillance for risk factors related to social determinants of health at all patient encounters. 
Practices can use written screeners or verbally ask family members questions about basic needs, such as food and housing. Unmet menstrual hygiene needs are an unrecognized health inequity, and we should really consider routine screening similar to other social determinants of health. We know that poor menstrual hygiene can lead to physical health risks and has been linked to reproductive and urinary tract infections. And as we've discussed, many young menstruators have limited options for affordable menstrual products. And these same adolescents actually have an increased demand for menstrual products due to unpredictable and irregular menses during puberty. So primary care physicians can really be a powerful force here in clarifying the scope of the problem within our own communities. They have tremendous influence to recognize and normalize these unwarranted financial burdens of menstruation. And in doing so, primary care providers can really help menstruating youth see menstruation as a healthy bodily function and not as a source of gender shame and burden. Those are really great points. And I know some of our CHOP residents have also taken up this issue as an advocacy project, which I think is great and something that people can do in their own communities, again, to do drives to support schools and community-based organizations that may need products. And like you said, decreasing stigma and increasing self-confidence related to what is a normal part of development. So thank you so much for reviewing all of this with us today and bringing light to this issue. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 